Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you so much for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Benjamin Lipscomb, the author of the new book, The Women Are Up to Something, a book about four philosophers that revolutionized ethics. Benjamin is a professor of philosophy specializing in contemporary ethical theory with an overarching focus on character formation. In the conversation, Benjamin and I discuss his path to philosophy, how we think with others, the meaning of ethics, how these four philosophers revolutionized ethics, and much more. Now, please welcome the wise and gracious Benjamin Lipscomb. Welcome, Ben. Thank you so much for taking the time to connect today. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Uh, I've really enjoyed the book that you've got coming out here soon, The Women Are Up to Something. But before we get into the book, uh, maybe a little bit about you. How do you describe your work in the world? I'm a teacher. Uh, I'm professor of philosophy, and I direct the honors programs at a little Christian liberal arts college in Western New York State, Houghton College. I've been here for coming on 20 years. It's my first job out of grad school. And so a lot of what I'm doing is cultivating young people to go out and do something worthwhile in the world. Um, When I'm not doing that, I'm gardening, raising chickens. Uh, I live in a little country town, one hamlet north of where the college is located out here. Uh, And uh, so there's some homesteading activities that I do on the side. Well, nice. I love it. And I'm always curious to ask people like yourself that embarked in a career of teaching philosophy early on, what led you down this path and how did you know that was the path for you, Ben? Oh, that's a good question. I had encountered philosophy as a thing uh, already in high school, though there aren't really very many high schools that teach philosophy. But I run across a book in a library uh, and became excited about this. I think for reasons that looking back, I'm a little embarrassed about, but instructive that they were books of imaginary Socratic dialogues uh, written by uh, this professor at Boston College, uh, Peter Kraft, and which Socrates sort of takes people down uh, and shows them the confusions in their thought. And I think I liked the idea of reason being a force that could compel people to, we still have this yearning in the era of COVID and COVID misinformation. If only we could speak a word that would compel people to recognize something they don't. Um, but I loved this idea of the power of reason. Um, 
went to uh, Calvin College, now Calvin University in Western uh, Michigan, where they have a really good philosophy department. And they led me past this, got me to see, no, philosophy is really useful for clarifying and sharpening our thoughts, but don't think of it as something that's going to strike down people's misconceptions, uh, make it impossible for someone to reply. That's not even a noble goal. Uh, so I had some really good mentoring there and came to see their way of doing philosophy as something that I really did want to teach and pursue. I knew I wanted to be a teacher, uh, I would say, before college. But the question was, what? Would I be like a high school English or history teacher or would I be teaching at the college level? And once it became clear to me that what my professors were offering was what I wanted, well, then it was philosophy and then it was college. Well, you mentioned the first book that really piqued your interest. Was there a, a second book that really kind of opened up that aperture, if you will, that you that you speak about? Yeah, I would have to point to uh, the second philosophy course I took uh, at Calvin uh, with John Hare, um, son of Richard Hare, who figures prominently in the book. Uh, he was teaching there at the time. And John had this attitude that I think came from his own experiences as an undergraduate at Oxford. He said to me once, he said, Ben, it is so hard to say anything true. <laughs> and he conveyed to me this sense of the seriousness of getting things right. Um, and was it the texts particularly? We were reading Aristotle's ethics and Kant's groundwork for the metaphysics of morals and then some essays on abortion. It was a pretty standard ethics syllabus, but it was the spirit in which he taught the class, the seriousness uh, that he imbued it with. And that I thought, I want to be like that. I want to be part of that project. Well, that's awesome. I, I appreciate you sharing some, some background. So this new book that's, that's coming out, um, what gave you the idea and the, and the motivation to, to write the women are up to something? I didn't know a lot about any of these women. I didn't really encounter their work um, in my undergraduate curriculum. And the first ethics course I took uh, in graduate school with my uh, graduate advisor, David Solomon, he featured uh, Philip Foote and Elizabeth Anscombe's writings prominently because he was uh, very invested in their project. And so I started reading them. I just delighted them as writer in, in them as writers. They are very lively stylists in a way that was characteristic of a number of mid-century Oxford uh, philosophers that I've discovered that they would tend to produce their books as lecture notes that would then grow into publications. And so there's a sense of audience of not being able to produce something that only works as prose, but has to work out loud. Um, literary genius would be too strong a word in some cases, but almost always a liveliness of style in these authors. So I, I enjoyed them. And then I came across Mary Midgley's memoir. I, in the late aughts, mid to late aughts, it had just come out. 
the Owl of Minerva. And she was talking about her undergraduate years uh, and her friendships formed early on with Iris Murdoch, Philippa Foote, Elizabeth Anscombe, and how they all made their way into philosophy. And I thought, well, goodness, you know, she's referring to this in an early chapter, but there's a real story here because I saw already there are likenesses, points of connection in their thought. Somebody should write a book about this. I didn't know that I would undertake it, but I saw that there could be such a book. Uh, mm-hmm. But then I got thinking about it. I teach at this little college. I'm not the kind of philosopher who can be keeping up at the cutting edge of some technical debate in the journals. Uh, my teaching load is too heavy for that. My commitments to my family <laughs> and mm-hmm. my church and my community are too heavy for that. But I thought, well, wait a moment. The kind of person who's going to do really exacting cutting-edge work in epistemology uh, or metaethics or philosophy of language isn't going to touch something that's this biographical. And a straight historian uh, or a journalist might not be interested enough in the philosophy. So maybe this falls exactly to someone like me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I love that. I, I'm I'm glad you you embarked on the project. How long have you have you been at this? 2007, 2008, I think the idea was germinating, taking root. I took a sabbatical uh, in uh, 2010, 2011, and just sat all year in a little wood stove heated cabin. Uh, in my backyard and read and reread everything uh, that these women had written um, and started going to England to look in archives. So a little over a decade. I had hoped, hoped to get it out maybe while Mary Midgley was still alive. Uh, She got to see some materials that were on the way to the book before she died in 2018. Um, And I'm pleased about that. But uh, I didn't quite make the centenary and didn't quite make it uh, while uh, any of the four were still alive. Well, nice. Let's, uh, I'm, I'm excited to get into the book. The, the subtitle is How Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley, and Irish Murdoch Revolutionized Ethics. Please correct me if I butchered any pronunciation there. But uh, maybe broadly speaking... How did they revolutionize eyes ethics? Well, there's a kind of background conception, uh, like a framing picture that people carry around with them unconsciously, a lot of people, that goes back to the early modern period in the scientific revolution, but really gained force in the 20th century. And on this picture, facts and values are sharply split from one another, that there's the world science investigates, the world of facts, and then on the other hand, there's judgments about good and bad, better and worse, right and wrong. And these are two separate uh, and non-communicating domains of discourse, universes. Um, And that was taken for granted. That was an axiom of the way that men 
and it was mostly, almost exclusively men uh, in the early 20th century in the English-speaking world, were thinking and writing about ethics, that they treated uh, facts and values as having nothing uh, to say to one another. Uh, A.J. Ayer published this improbable bestseller in 1935, Language, Truth, and Logic, and in Ayer's book, he's got this chapter on ethics and theology in which he says they're just noise. They're just meaningless sounds. This isn't even meaningful language. So, you know, the men of the same uh, generation as my subjects, uh, they had private commitments. Everybody does. But they thought of them as these commitments they just chose in perfect freedom that they weren't constrained at all. There was nothing they were trying to get right uh, in their thinking about ethics. Um, and for reasons that even after writing a book, I don't know whether I am completely sure uh, I've gotten to the bottom of, these women who all met at Oxford right at the beginning of the Second World War and became friends and started bouncing ideas off one another, they said, that's wrong. Uh, that can't be right. I know, at least in the case of Philippa Foote, that she was thinking about the horrors of the Second World War and of what went on in Nazi Germany and saying, whatever we say, we can't say that Hitler just chose in freedom different values than the rest of us. There's got to be a way to say he was getting something wrong. He was misusing his one precious life and damaging the lives of others. Uh, there's got to be an objective judgment we can pass here. And uh, they went to work. Not at first, I think, seeing that this is what they were doing, but the four of them, each in different and complementary ways, went to work articulating an alternative to this fact-value split picture uh, that they and their contemporaries had inherited. And uh, at risk of going on a little bit further about this, uh, the picture is one that takes us back to some ancient sources, uh, particularly to uh, Aristotle, who thought of human beings as leading wildly diverse lives, but where all of us in our diverse pursuits and diverse communal and historical contexts, all of us need certain kinds of traits in order to engage in cooperative activities with one another and to thrive in those cooperative activities together. We need courage and generosity and self-control and more. And this, once they encountered it, made a lot of sense to these women. And they pushed, why can't we go back to a view like that? Why can't something like that uh, be put in a respectable form for uh, the contemporary world. How about today? Is there any sort of split in, in philosophy on your view to that, how you write the dominant view of, of moral philosophers in that time of nothing is objectively good or bad or right or wrong? Is that, you know, where is it today? Yeah, in philosophy, it seems like nothing ever gets decisively settled. <laughs> My uh, editor and some of the other people at Oxford were hoping that maybe I 
could write a last chapter in which I say, and these women carried all before them and everybody thinks uh, that they were clearly right. But it's never like that. First of all, the background picture is too powerful that this idea of a world of inert facts and then sort of lonely, misplaced human beings who find themselves in this world of facts and have to invent values to give themselves meaning in a world that has no meaning. That picture is really seductive. Uh, it's captivating. And so, of course, there are still devotees of it. People who are deeply immersed in the sciences, people who have simply imbibed this. Uh, one place you'll uh, recall from uh, looking at the book where we see this is in this language arts exercise that a lot of kids uh, do in schools, uh, distinguishing facts from opinions. I mean, it's well meant. The exercises were first devised by teachers who were trying to make kids more resistant to propaganda, which is a good thing in any time uh, and place, and especially these days. But the way these exercises are set up, any evaluative language at all gets something classed not as facts, but as opinions. And so you get statements like, you know, strawberry ice cream is the yummiest. My mom is the best. Uh, classed with Abraham Lincoln was a brilliant orator. My neighbor's in better shape than I am. Torture is wrong. And I want to say, you know, there are real distinctions in that second group between ones that can be given an excellent grounding in truths about the world that we could argue are truths about the world and ones that really are just personal tastes, nothing more to be said about them. But there's a lingering form of this background picture of this preconception that, you know, the world is cold and hard and valueless and we impose value on it. I think uh, it's very much still alive, but the women that I'm writing about, they sketched a compelling alternative. They put another possibility in front of us. It's a really interesting topic, but uh, a previous episode that listeners may be familiar with um, was with the author of after humanity, um, a guide to C.S. Lewis's abolition of man. Oh, yeah. Is that a similar point that, that C.S. Lewis is making of the objectivity of value and subjectivism being a problem? Oh, yeah. Anybody who has read The Abolition of Man and then comes to my book is going to see that Lewis out of his set of concerns and engagements was troubled by and resisting uh, something similar to what these women were troubled by and were resisting uh, that, that what he calls the green book, this um, school's uh, textbook that implies without ever coming out and making it a point of value theory, but this textbook that implies that, all of our evaluative moral or spiritual reactions to the world are just kind of personal uh, feelings that can't have a good or a bad grounding. Um, that's very much the picture that uh, air and hair and others of these women's generation were plumping for 
sometimes without even pausing to reflect on that there was a choice or an alternative there because I think uh, they often didn't see one, but it is the same dialectic. And then what these women do is to go beyond uh, saying, well, that's not satisfactory. And to say, what would an ethics look like? C.S. Lewis talks about the Tao, uh, that we just, we just know these things inside and we need to trust what we know. And I think that's not uh, a useless thing to say, but uh, I think it's really helpful to take the next step and ask, what would it look like to build a moral theory that rejects this background picture that says, no, it's not the only acceptably modern thing to think that facts and values are sundered. Something you said earlier was this unconsciously. Um, I think, and obviously maybe it's easier in hindsight, if you know, you look back and and you look at that, um, nothing is objectively good or bad, you know, maybe in hindsight, we're looking back, that doesn't make sense. I don't know. I think of, of grades, you know, we kind of know and, a is better than a B or virtues, you know, courage is better than cowardice. But how, how does it happen? You know, could you say more in terms of unconsciously? Hmm. Some of it, I think, is literally fashion. Um, but fashion can go quite deep. That hmm. what the people around you tell you you're allowed to take seriously what they speak slightingly or even scornfully of what they speak reverently or respectfully about these things get into us. Alan Jacobs, uh, professor of English, uh, and all around polymath down at Baylor university in his book, how to think says none of us think alone. <laughs> we always think with other people. And so it's really important who you think with because their priors, their biases and everybody's got them are going to, uh, be catching, uh, contagious, uh, for you in, in their company. And there's no getting away from this. We're social creatures, uh, in our thinking as well as in other ways. So that's part of this. Again, there are deep trends in modern thought that Aristotle was rejected by early modern scientists who were trying to get out from under a dogmatic uh, endorsement of his theories, who were trying to do physics in new ways that Aristotle hadn't anticipated and needed to break the authority that he had um, in the medieval West in order to get a hearing for, in order to clear the air uh, to do their own work. And they gave us this compelling picture in which, you know, the, the world is matter in motion. The world is like billiard balls bouncing into one another, ricocheting off one another on a table. Um, and that image is a really powerful one. Uh, so there's sort of deep background assumptions that are half articulated in all kinds of ways uh, in the culture. Um, are there more things to it than that? Murdoch, at least, uh, she particularly among her friends thought she saw a kind of seduction in the very idea of I'm the inventor of values. 
that mm. there's something weirdly consoling about saying the universe is a harsh and pitiless and valueless place, but uh, I am going to be brave enough to face this and to look it straight in the eye and as cold and brutal as it is, I will be brave, will not shy away from uh, these truths and I will make the best of it. I can a little bit like uh, Hector facing his doom in the Iliad. Uh, he says, well, I'm going down now, but not without a fight uh, that there's <laughs> something uplifting about the thought of the world as an abyss. And here we are holding hands, standing on the brink, uh, but we can steel ourselves to face it and we can rely on one another. I think there's this power to that image. Do you see that as a case for really keeping humility in in mind in terms of a, a virtue and in, in avoiding a maybe a narcissistic type of path? Would you see how you just explain that as, as a bit of our inner narcissism uh, doing us some wrong? I mean, we're all inclined to find an inspiring narrative and inspiring images to live under and to live up to. So I can't blame this too stridently, uh, but it can mislead us. Uh, it can give us an over grand picture of ourselves. I think intellectual humility is uh, tremendously important. And I think one not always attended to manifestation or practice in intellectual humility is trying to figure out what am I taking for granted? What are the common sense presuppositions that I'm not even asking questions about, uh, mm. but that I should notice are there? Not necessarily to say, oh, I've identified a presupposition. Now I need to tear it all down and, you know, go more neutral or presuppositionless because I don't think that's a recognizable human way of thinking. Descartes was wrong about this. You can't tear down your whole mental world and build it up again from nothing. Um, but how do I want to put this? Uh, to be aware of our presuppositions, to be interested in them, to ask what the alternatives are to them. How do people think differently than me? What's, lit up by or obscured by uh, the presuppositions that I find congenial and illuminating. Um, these are good questions to ask. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, something that comes up in the, the abolition of man, and then we'll, we'll move on to these important figures that you, that you wrote about was um, the idea of beauty. It kind of stretched to the objectivity of value to, to beauty. I think of the example of, of the waterfall mm -hmm. in, in there mm -hmm. is that do these four figures kind of get into, um, you know, beyond ethics and out to, to things around, around beauty. They don't write with the exception of Iris Murdoch who was a novelist as well as a philosopher and better known as a novelist uh, than as a philosopher. Um, they didn't write a lot about aesthetics. Philip Foote, uh, a few things, but it wasn't a central concern of theirs. I don't want to pronounce too quickly 
on this, speculate about what might they have said about this. Um, I think there are, just speaking for myself here, um, but as someone heavily influenced by these women, I think a similar kind of move to the one they make. They say in the domain of ethics, look, there is a characteristic outline, a pattern that takes many different concrete forms uh, that works for human beings and community together. And this has implications for what's worth caring about, what's worth pursuing and how to do it. Um, Could we say something similar about that human appreciation is not utterly (laughs) open-ended? It's uh, that the things that speak to us, that move us, that delight us fall within certain ranges or have certain characteristics, but, you know, that are very multiform. Um, I think something like that uh, has a lot of sense to it. A avocational preoccupation of mine is architecture and urban planning. And I think certainly we've attempted an experiment in the 20th century in disregarding what is it that people just naturally respond to in terms of the layout of a built environment. And I'm not aware that any of my subjects were interested in this movement, but the new urbanist movement has been calling us back for several decades now to thinking about, you know, when you set up a walkable space with a mixture of uses, this brings people together in ways that are both healthy for their communal life and that they find delightful. Um, that starts to sound like aesthetic objectivity. <laughs> something I found interesting, uh, you write in the book, that they didn't use the term virtue ethics. No. Um, and didn't really care for the term. How did they think about ethics? Each of them somewhat differently. Um, virtue ethics became a term of art, as you might know, in the 1980s and 1990s in the English-speaking philosophical world uh, by people who were followers of and inspired by especially Anscombe and Foote. Um, but Foot, who thought about this the most explicitly, this question of, am I a virtue ethicist or not? No, I don't think I am. She would have said, I'm thinking about human life and what makes it work. And virtues might be an important part of that, but they're not the whole as Aristotle himself, the great virtue theorist of the ancient world. Aristotle saw this, that there are basic needs that have to be met for a person to thrive so that, you know, people like uh, Marchesen and uh, Martha Nussbaum who stress human needs and the setting up of people to exercise their capacities as crucial ethical tasks. That's important. Uh, Aristotle says you can have all the virtue in the world, but if you're knocked out and in a coma for the rest of your life, or if you are desperately poor or sick or politically oppressed, you're not going to be able to exercise your virtue very much. So Foote said, let's talk about human life and what makes it go well. And virtues will be a part of that. But Let's not give a name to our ethics that implies that all there is is a set of traits. 
I don't think they were opposed to the idea of making virtues quite central, but they wouldn't want us to think that as John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham thought that consequences and pleasures were everything. And as Immanuel Kant seems to suggest sometimes that uh, rational consistency is everything. So too, we're going to say that the acquisition of virtues is everything. Uh, Foot says, no, um, it's more complicated than that. How do you think that reframing might influence our ability to integrate virtue into our, our everyday life? Any, any thoughts? Um, tell me a little bit more about what you mean about the reframing, about seeing that there's more than virtue, though virtue is a key ingredient. Yeah, it, it seems like in terms of the idea of virtue ethics, having, okay. you know, whether it be cardinal virtues, theological virtues as this operating system for you, maybe thinking about it, um, as you said, kind of more complicated, a bit more more to it. I, I'm just uh, maybe a difficult question, but curious in terms of how the way they mm. see it and didn't necessarily care for that term of virtue ethics mm. might help someone to actually embody or integrate them. Sure. Um, I think there's a realism that Foote and her friends would call us to uh, that would keep us from exaggerating uh, would keep us rather, I think I want to stay instead from neglecting things that matter that there, this goes back to the things I said at the beginning of our conversation, uh, Joshua about, um, how I thought once as a teenager, Oh, reason is going to be this force that compels people to be reasonable as I see being reasonable. Um, I think there is, a theorist's vice, uh, a theorist's ignoble uh, compulsion to suppose that you'll find the key, the sort of one quick move or theoretical, theoretical conceit that will answer all the questions and make everything come together. And to be reminded, okay, virtue is very important, but also uh, people having enough to eat uh, is really important. And so don't neglect the on-the-street calls for various kinds of concrete material justice to be done uh, in your legitimate concern for the traits that we're acquiring, the characteristics uh, that we're deepening in ourselves that both those things matter. And although she didn't comment on this, Mary Midgley wasn't a person who was and is engaged with or worried about the niceties of contemporary academic debate. Uh, she was sort of insider outsider, uh, or maybe more of an outsider than that. Uh, her constant refrain in her work is to complicate, to think more holistically, not to be reductionist, but to see a plurality of 
uh, things as mattering and needing to be brought together and integrated uh, into a comprehensive picture in a way that might not come out very tidily. And um, I think one thing I learned from thinking about this question you've posed, uh, the thought that comes to mind is don't be too tidy minded. Mm. I love that. I, I think that's really, really helpful. I was hoping we could spend um, a little bit of time and briefly talk about each of the four women um, that you write about in sure. in the book. Sure. Um, do you have one you want to start with? <laughs> yeah, maybe we could go in order as they're um, listed in the subtitle. Maybe uh, Anscombe we okay. could start with. Anscombe's the one who surely would have ended up in philosophy uh, with or without good teachers with or without uh, the serendipity, if you can call the effects of a war serendipity, but the other three, I think found their way into philosophy because this really unusual set of circumstances converged and all the men left Oxford in their, uh, in their second year, just as they were starting uh, their philosophy curriculum uh, to go off to war. And they had the place to themselves and the faculty to themselves. Uh, but Anscombe, she was a born philosopher. She was the uh, child of a couple of opinionated school teachers. And uh, she started reading um, some Catholic sources, G.K. Chesterton, uh, and Richard Challoner, uh, his stories about, uh, English Catholic martyrs as in her middle teens and was just arrested by the courage, uh, that the Catholic martyrs showed and the sort of beauty of the vision of life that Chesterton was exploring. And she read herself into a conversion that if you know about mid-century British social attitudes, was not a popular one. Her parents were aghast that she was becoming a papist. Uh, this certainly wouldn't have done anything for her social standing more broadly. Uh, there were people who wouldn't rent to Catholics uh, uh, in mid-century Britain. and But she knew her own mind and was already reading books about philosophical theology as a teenager. So She's the one. She ends up being Wittgenstein's mentee at Cambridge uh, after her undergraduate years, becomes his preferred translator of his major late works. Everyone from her undergraduate friends to the other faculty at Oxford when she was teaching there were in awe of her. And she's the acknowledged leader of the group. She was always, not just with her parents, contrarian, um, or always willing to go to war <laughs> for uh, what she saw as important moral and spiritual truths. So maybe the most famous incident in her life was her standing virtually alone. Philippa Foote voted with her in the end, and a couple of others, standing virtually alone in opposing uh, Oxford's giving an honorary degree to, uh, to Harry Truman. Uh, in 1956, on the grounds that, according to traditional uh, just war uh, theories, which she embraced, uh, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were uh, murder. 
they were killing the innocent as a means to strategic ends. Uh, no two ways about it. Um, and, uh, of course, a great deal of institutional embarrassment over her protest. Nobody wanted to uninvite the former president of the United States, but she was going to say what she thought was true here, uh, no matter what the consequences, no matter what disapprobrium, uh, this brought down on her. Um, and that's a picture of her. She was, I think at age 70, uh, carried off hand and foot into a police wagon, uh, as she was protesting outside an abortion clinic. This, uh, is, uh, this is a picture of her. Um, I can go on and on about Anscom, uh, who is a character in lots of ways in her eccentric dress sense, uh, in her language choices, <laughs> in lots of ways. But um, most of all, I think uh, she is someone like Jonathan Swift, to whom she compared herself on one occasion, who... was capable of a tremendous outrage, a tremendous uh, upwelling of feeling at seeing crucial moral truths disregarded and unwilling to stand by and say nothing. For Anscombe and, and maybe the other three, is there any entry point book that you might recommend if somebody's looking to, to learn more about her? She's, in some of her writings, uh, in a lot of her writings, she's a very dense philosopher. Um, her daughter, uh, uh, Mary Geach Garmali, in the introduction to a collection of Anscombe's essays, uh, compares her mother's work uh, to a really dense, chewy dessert uh, that takes a lot of time to, to chew and swallow. That uh, seems to be a really apt uh, comparison. Um but if somebody wanted to get started with Anscombe, I think the key to her thought is that certain forms of killing that uh, the modern world was beginning to countenance, abortion, euthanasia, uh, the use of uh, military uh, technology on civilian populations, she thought that we were losing our grip on the concept of murder. And she's got a piece called War and Murder uh, that I think is an excellent starting point for seeing what maybe mattered to her the most existentially. And I think it's, uh, it's pretty readable, uh, even for someone who hasn't been in a set of background discussions. All right. Great. How about we move on to, to Foot? Sure. Oh, Foot's uh, delightful. I think she was the glue that held this group together more than anyone else. Anscombe, so combative and socially awkward in certain ways. And Foote adored her, looked up to her, sought her as a mentor for years and years as they were colleagues at Somerville College, Oxford. So she was a bridge to Anscombe. She had this intimate, intimate friendship with Iris Murdoch that went back to their being roommates right after uh, the Second World War in London, uh, still with the Blitz on. And uh, she and Mary Midgley, though they had uh, tensions between them, stayed connected. The two of them were uh, the last two to die, and they were 
uh, in touch with one another to the end of Foot's life until there was just uh, just Mary left. Um, she grew up in North Yorkshire. She's the granddaughter of U.S. President Grover Cleveland. Her mother was the last baby oh, wow. born in the White House. And uh, she marries the younger son of this very distinguished old family that turns up in all of these books like Brooks Peerage, William Bosenkett. Um, but a younger son, so he wasn't going to inherit the estate, but certainly he was very comfortably positioned for life. So these two come together, and it's a power marriage. They met, I think, on some skiing vacation in the Alps <laughs> uh, just uh, before the uh, First World War, and they're married in Westminster Abbey. It's reported on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, she comes from distinction, but she hates this. Uh, she rebels against it almost as soon as she realizes what kind of a life she's been born to. And when one of her governesses says – you know, you could really go to university. She is committed. She is out of there like a shot. She starts doing the correspondence courses to make up her gaps. She does a year's coaching in Oxford before she goes up, as they say in England, to start uh, her degree program. She was always self-conscious about her handwriting and her spelling and how much background reading she'd done compared to people who had been in normal schools. But she was determined to escape this world of privilege that she'd been born into. And you kind of see her whole life as making up for reversing uh, what she had been born to, that she was tremendously self-giving in projects of charity and service. Uh, She taught a heavy load always, but the women of Somerville College, which is still a women's college, it's it's not anymore, uh, but the women of Somerville College sought her out as a person to talk to when they were uh, pregnant unexpectedly, when they were getting harassed by another professor, when they were trying to decide what they were going to do with their lives after university, and she was just limitlessly giving. She was involved with Oxfam almost from the start of that organization's history started out sorting clothes at a warehouse in Gloucester green in Oxford and a trustee and vice chair of the finance committee. By the time she stepped away in the early seventies, she was the key organizer, at least a key organizer of a drive to bring Hungarian refugees in 1957 uh, to Oxford uh, to get away from the conflict there. She was a person as I read her, who was always like almost trying to make up for something, <laughs> trying to vindicate her life. But she said to Peter Conradi, uh, Iris Murdoch's authorized biographer, asked, uh, he was good friends with, uh, with Philip, and he asked her once, like, you know, what do you think of the difference in spiritual outlook between yourself and your friend? And she said, Iris had a spiritual life. I had a moral life. Um, I think it's uh, a cryptic but astute comment. She was decidedly atheist and didn't want to go into it much with anyone, um, but was endlessly pouring herself out uh, for the good of the world. Hmm. I, I love it. Your passion definitely comes through when when it comes to speaking about these these four figures that you that you wrote about it, and it comes through in the book as well. Uh, how about uh, Midgley and 
and Murdoch. Yeah, they are the ones who left the Academy. Uh, and for overlapping reasons that uh, Murdoch at one level left because she was becoming uh, a well-known novelist and wanted to focus on that. She was writing her novels in the summer and then teaching all year. Uh, and it was an exhausting uh, pattern to maintain. Um, but she also left because what she did as a philosopher reading people, not just in the Anglophone sphere, but French and German and Russian and other figures and trying to see these things we were talking about earlier, what's going on in the spirit of our times, what background preconceptions are we unconsciously uh, allowing to govern our thought? Um, this is what all of her early philosophy, uh, the bulk of her philosophy is about. And, it just wasn't recognized as being properly philosophical, as being exacting and professional enough, uh, including, I have to say, a little sadly, by Philippa Foote, uh, who very much found her passion within the academy in doing the kind of careful, exacting arguments uh, that were what was respected in that time and place. Um and Murdoch could never rest content with that. She always wanted to think about the wider connections of the sorts of things Foote was doing to what people were saying in a variety of intellectual traditions and inside and outside the academy. Um, and so she left, I think, with some doubts about whether she really had what it took to be a philosopher. I think she absolutely did, but she was a different kind of philosopher than people knew to appreciate at the time. And Midgley, though she stepped away in the first instance simply to raise her three boys and then started publishing, started teaching again in her mid-40s and started publishing, really, in her 50s, the first of her 16 books comes out when she's 59, I want to say, in 1978. Uh, and then she was a machine after that. Um, but both of them... Murdoch wanting to connect politics and art and the French and the Russians to whatever was going on lately in Oxford philosophy and nobody quite knew what to do with it. And so she left and Midgley had a hard time connecting back to the Anglophone Academy because what she'd been interested in since she was a little girl at her father's rectory outside London were toads and newts and mice and she got interested in the new ethologists like Conrad Lorenz and Jane Goodall in the 1950s and 60s when she was on hiatus from teaching. When she came back, she kind of couldn't fit herself back into that world anymore. She wanted to ask questions and write about questions that weren't sort of journal article sized and weren't foregrounded within the... Uh, academic debate. So she always was a bit of an outsider for that reason. How does it feel for you, this long project that you've been at for a long time? How does it feel to, to highlight, you know, these figures that may be lesser known to, uh, to people out there? Oh, I hope uh, that I get some people to pick up things like Manscom's War and Murder uh, or, I don't know, Foote's famous essay in which she invents uh, the now 
uh, infamous trolley problem, the runaway uh, trolley that can be shunted onto mm-hmm. one of two tracks. Uh, Mary Midgley's many, many uh, popular writings are Iris Murdoch's The Sovereignty of Good. I hope some people pick up these books and discover what lively and searching writers uh, these are. Um, it's a big year, I, I should say. I, I don't want to end our conversation without pointing out that um, in this zeitgeisty way that happens, there's like several books that are going to come out uh, in close succession. Um, some uh, some peers of mine, um, Rachel Wiseman and Claire McCool, are at work on a book with a slightly different focus and time range, but with these four figures at the heart of it that's going to come out in February in the UK and in May in the US, and I'm really looking forward to reading it. And just a, uh, maybe our time has flown by here, but maybe a brief wrap-up question. If you could pick an an aphorism from one of these women to plaster on billboards and all over social media, what would what comes to mind? Iris Murdoch. Uh, she's got lots of great one-liners. Uh, one of hers uh, that I wouldn't put on the sides of buses. <laughs> is uh it's a good question to ask about any philosopher what is he afraid of uh but because that wouldn't work on the side of a bus here's another of hers she says human beings are animals who make pictures of themselves who make pictures and then conform themselves to the pictures uh who then live into these pictures i'm not getting the wording exactly right i don't have it in front of me but that we tend to inhabit the background pictures um, that uh, that shape and bound our thought. And that's been on my mind the whole time I've been writing the book. And it goes to that exchange we had about humility and recognizing these, uh, these things in ourselves that we had earlier. I love that. And I'm really grateful for your time. I, I really enjoyed the conversation and the book. Um, where can people go to, to learn more about you and the, and the book? Well, uh, it's, on all of the purveyors of, uh, of books and, and the editor, uh, delightful editor, Lucy Randall, that I got to work with at Oxford. Um, she tells me that global supply chain interruptions might create problems for the second printing, but that the first printing <laughs> happened before this could be a problem. So in addition to, to being able to get it as an ebook, you know, the Oxford University Press website, Jeff Bezos's empire, uh, of course, but I like to steer people to bookshop uh, where you can get it too. Benjamin Lipscomb, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.